This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled From It to I, The Experience of God, recorded June 30th, 1996 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Gershom Shalom, the great uh, contemporary scholar of Jewish mysticism, who I mentioned earlier, uh, writes about the Zohar, which is the basic text of uh, Kabbalism. It's second probably only to the Torah in importance. And he says, according to the Zohar, God, when he has just decided to launch upon his work of creation, is called He. God, in the complete unfolding of his being, grace and love, in which he becomes capable of being perceived by the reasons of the heart, is called you. But God, in his supreme manifestation, where the fullness of his being finds its final expression in the last and all-embracing of his attributes, is called I. Now, that's a quite remarkable passage. Very much like the uh, Sufis, the Jewish mystics have this tremendous reverence for the word and understanding of the importance language and thought plays in shaping our experience of the world. So at first, sometimes it sounds strange uh, and a, a little bit bizarre, the emphasis they give to the way things are expressed, particularly in their own texts, their sacred texts. But truly speaking, if you examine your own experience of the world, you see it's very much determined by the language in which you think. This is becoming very clear to modern sociologists, by the way, as well. There have been a lot of recent studies in the last few decades about this. So this uh, quite remarkable passage describes not only a cosmological view of how creation is unfolds and how the divine unfolds and is enfolded in creation, it also expresses the way that human beings can relate to the divine. Various, what we might call stages of relationship, of how the divine is experienced uh, as you progress on a spiritual path. So, the uh, this particular passage outlines basically three ways in which someone can experience the divine. God can be experienced as he, or it could be she in other traditions. For instance, in Hindu traditions, God is often thought of as a mother, as a she. Uh, but then God can be experienced as a you. And there's a difference of experiencing God as a he or a she and a you. And then finally, God can be experienced as an I. So this morning, I thought we'd use this Kabbalist map uh, to try to elucidate uh what these transformations mean, and how they come about on a spiritual path. Now, to Kabbalists, and, and basically to all pre-modern peoples, this world is um, least demands that sort of relationship to some divinity, a god, or a supreme being, or a supreme principle, like the great Tao. Uh, this, of course, is not true anymore because you now have a materialist outlook, which has become quite dominant, particularly in the West, but is also increasingly becoming dominant in the rest of the world, at least among the intellectuals, the upper classes. And in materialist culture, this, of course, is not so. There's no experience of God as he or she. You might say the materialist relationship to the world is that of an it. So actually, there's a fourth way that is possible for human beings to experience 
the world, uh, not only uh, he, you, uh, and I, but also as an it. So let's begin with this uh, most uh, distant, uh, uh, from the mystic's point of view, most distant and uh, impoverished experience of the world. What is it to experience the world as an it, and where did this come from? Well, the experience of the world as an it started to um, manifest, we might say, during the 18th century when uh, most European intellectuals started to become converted to uh, materialism, this new materialist paradigm or worldview that was uh, spreading throughout Europe. It's very important for us to understand, for instance, that materialism and any worldview has a history. Uh, it's not just obvious to all human beings that the world is the way materialists experience the world, although materialists, of course, think that's true. And they think that, that people who believe in God have added something in here, and it's a kind of a fantasy or something else. But they think that uh, everybody basically experiences the world they do. And by the way, uh, this is true not only just of materialists. Most people brought up in a certain culture, the way you're brought up to experience the world, that's the way the world is, and everybody else is a little bit off. So that's a, uh, a worldview-centric uh, tendency we human beings have. So if you can see that you're, the way you were brought up in the world, if you were brought up in a materialist worldview, that that view itself has a history, a beginning, a middle, and it will have an end. Uh, it's already coming to an end. Uh, it's easier then to, uh, for yourself to become a little bit more detached from that view, to not see it as being just the take-it-for-granted truth, but something that, that you can accept or not. So the uh, French philosopher La Maîtrie, uh was one of the first to really give this view a, uh, a radical and, and concrete expression. He was a, a 17th, an 18th century French philosopher. And he says, Let us then conclude boldly that man is a machine and that the whole universe consists only of a single substance, matter, subject to different modifications. There's no clear statement, a little bit simplistic, but a clear statement of the materialist worldview. Everything is matter. This is, you know, and later when atomism came along, it was broken down even more precisely. Everything is little bits of atoms like billiard balls bouncing around, and so all that we experience is just nothing a result of these little atoms bouncing around, collecting together, and then spreading apart. Now, such a view, in the, even though it starts off as an intellectual philosophical view, it can't help but eventually affect our experience of the universe. And we have some contemporary examples of uh, how it affects the experience of the universe. Here, for instance, is the physicist Steven Weinberg. He wrote a book called The First Three Minutes, which you can still get in the bookstores. I believe, and he wrote part of this book on an airplane. He was riding an airplane or flying from coast to coast or someplace. And he says, from here the earth looks very soft and comfortable. It is very hard to realize that this is just a tiny part of an overwhelmingly hostile universe. It is even harder to realize that the present universe has evolved from unspeakably unfamiliar early conditions. He's talking about the Big Bang and faces a future extinction of endless cold or intolerable heat. So his experience of this universe is this, uh, a hostile place, basically, an unfamiliar, a non-human place. The famous atheist uh, philosopher Bertrand Russell, uh, who was prominent in this century, gives even more explicit view of how 
this kind of uh, worldview affects the relationship with the world. He says, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now, this is a typical materialist philosopher's uh, view of things. We, we have to face reality. We have to face the facts. There is no God. There's nothing divine. Everything is just the result of these uh, accidental collection of atoms and any sort of philosophy or any sort of uh, ethics or anything we're going to build on this has to be built on this, as he called this, sense of unyielding despair. It's all meaningless. Uh, existentialism, which was a movement particularly in France that came about after the Second World War, was an attempt to build a philosophy on this unyielding despair, so to speak. Now, uh, this again, it comes about because you literally experience the world as a big it. It's dead. It's lifeless. It's just matter. It's nothing. It has no purpose, no anything. And atheists, of course, would deny that this is an experience of God which a mystic would say, well, the, the atheist is experiencing God as an it. Of course, the atheist would say, well, there is no God. But from the mystic's uh, point of view, uh, it's a delusion that's being projected onto God, so to speak. So if you experience the world as a big it, you're really experiencing God, you don't know it, and you think it's a big it. So like itness? The it. Itness, yes. <laughs> and, uh, yes, his itness. <laughs> uh there's an analogy for this would be like a psychotic uh, who believes that all human beings are robots planted uh, here by aliens from outer space and and doesn't relate to them as human beings, relates to them as machines. And he would, of course, deny there are any other human beings, but from the point of view of a sane person, you would say, well, this is a delusion the psychotic has that all these people are robots. So um, this really is a rather pathological way of experiencing the world, even by psychological standards. But nevertheless, many people in our culture do experience the world this way. And I have to include myself. At one time, I very much experienced the world this way. Now, let's contrast this, what I would consider anyway, a pathological experience of the world with a mystic's experience of the world. Here, for example, is the great Christian mystic, St. Bonaventure of the 13th century or 14th century. And he writes, All the creatures of the sense world lead the mind of the contemplative and wise man to the eternal God. For whoever is not enlightened by such splendor of created things is blind. Whoever is not awakened by such outcries is deaf. Whoever, is not, whoever does not praise God because of all these effects is dumb. Whoever does not discover the first principle from such clear signs is a fool. So here's someone who appreciates the world as, in a sense, a sign or as a symbol of God. Everything speaks of God. Uh, by the way, often mystics are accused of being sort of anti-worldly and disparaging nature and so forth. And you read through the mystics. So that's really not true. There is a stage in a spiritual path where you're advised to turn away from things of the world, but that's just a stage. So uh, this is quite different from the experience of the world as an it. This is the experience of the world uh, at least as a minimum of an expression of a he or a she or a, a some principle here that is beyond the world. 
So how can this experience of the world as it be transformed into the experience of the world as a sign or a symbol of the divinity? And frankly, it's very difficult. Uh, and I speak from my own experience, somebody who's really locked into a materialist worldview, especially if they've been brought up with it, uh, they're very attached to it. Because, you know, some world is better than no world. And to let go of the world you're used to can be a very frightening thing. Uh, materialists also, frankly, tend to be very arrogant, as I was, and, and look down on everybody else. And it, it's very difficult to break through this. If you uh, know something about quantum mechanics, and the person's interested in science, you might uh, try to direct them to quantum mechanics, because actually the materialist worldview is no longer the scientific worldview. Uh, since the quantum revolution, uh, what uh, Lemaitre said about the world is as obsolete as what Ptolemy said about uh, the solar system. Ptolemy was the one who had the, formalized the view that the sun moves around the earth, and of course that was overthrown with Copernicus. So now quantum mechanics has overthrown this materialist worldview, and most people don't really know that yet, so they cling to this where it's really an obsolete worldview on, on faith. But most people aren't that interested in science anyway, and, and certainly not the uh, mysteries of quantum mechanics. Uh, one way sometimes is uh, to share your own spiritual experiences and insights. Sometimes that uh, intrigues people, arouses their curiosity, especially if they are uncomfortable with the materialist worldview. But if they're very comfortable with it, and especially if in their own lives they're on a tide of rising success and so forth, it, it's really impossible to get through to them. It would have been impossible to get through to me at a certain point in my life. And so it's best really to leave them to God, who, as the Quran says, guides and misguides whom he pleases, and, and not worry about it. But this experience of the world as at least a sign, at least an expression of some uh, he or she or God or divinity is quite common among exoteric believers. That is, anybody who's been brought up in any religious tradition, even though it's may not, they may not have any sense that there's a mystical core to their tradition. I'm talking about fundamentalists and just average your average everyday believer. Uh, they at least recognize there's something more to all this than meets the eye, so to speak. Uh, this is also often true of beginners on a mystical spiritual path, that their beginning relationship to the divine is he or she or something out there. Uh, he or she doesn't necessarily have to be a person in that sense. You might uh, have some intuition of a, a divine intelligence operating in the universe. I once uh, remember, even in my materialist days, watching a documentary on one of these nature programs about a little marine ecosystem, someplace in the Pacific, I think it was. And I don't remember the details of it, but it was just fabulous. These, these fish had evolved so that they, uh, their whole anatomy, their structure imitated the plants that they lived among. So you look at this, look like uh, seaweed, you know, flowing, and you just could not tell. But some of them were actually fish. And this was a camouflage device. And then there were other fish that some were poison, and so other fish wouldn't eat them. Well, then another non-poisonous species uh, imitated them, so they look exactly like the poison fish, so they escape being eaten. And, and then the complexities of the interactions of the, the little food chain here. I mean, some fish fed off the, the bacteria in the mouths of the other fish and all this and whatnot. And you looked at it and you thought, it just cannot be by accident. It just can't.
And, you know, even the, the uh, narrators in that, they, they are all usually good Darwinists and so forth, but they always, they, ha- they put it in terms of nature's wisdom here, you know. They can't help but going back to that old story that there's some intelligence at work. And I don't have a substitute for evolutionism. I think a lot, lot of the theory is uh, a very good way to look at things. It explains a lot, but I don't, certainly don't think it's the whole ball of wax. In any case, uh, it doesn't take a lot of brains to get this intuition. There's something more here, which usually, if you're a hardcore materialist, you censor that out. You get these little flashes, but then you don't want to be a softy. You know, you want to be hard-nosed, and so you dismiss that kind of thing. But uh, even if you are a ordinary believer, or if you are beginning a spiritual path, and you have a sense that there's something more here, some divine intelligence operating, it's usually experienced as something distant from yourself and your everyday world. For instance, a lot of exoteric believers think of God as a big daddy or a big mommy in the sky who's available in time of need, you know, when you're sick or something, and you can pray for help and so forth. Uh, but in their normal day-to-day life, they don't really think that much about God. Uh, we, in the Christian tradition, there's you know the, the Sunday believer, the Sunday Christian who goes to church and sort of pays lip service and may really believe, but it doesn't. That doesn't really affect how they experience the world day to day. Other people uh, think of the divine as the Lord of Judgment, or the the one who's going to punish you for your sins and reward you for your good deeds, and and so you're going to meet God on uh, after death, you know, on the resurrection day, and so maybe it influences you enough to avoid gross evils because you're afraid of this. But again, it's not something you experience uh, often. For particularly more sophisticated people who do acknowledge something more, uh, some sort of divinity, uh, God may be really just a philosophical principle that's demanded by the order of the world. For instance, this little marine ecosystem. You think, uh, that yes, there must be more. And then God's something fun to read about once in a while. You think this is true of a lot of modern New Ages, you know. They, uh, it's, it's fun to read these books about science and mysticism and science and religion, and your mind gets going. You might go to some conference or whatever. But again, in your day-to-day life, you're not really experiencing the divine, and you're still basically relating to the world as an it, a kind of a machine, quite, quite mechanical. So we might say that this god, the, the he god, is a purely transcendent god. It's a, a distant God, and it's a God of the mind. It's a God that's accepted by the mind and thought about, uh, but it's not really a God that uh, permeates your, your experience of the world. Uh, but it's still better than to uh, have this purely, uh, exclusively, it experience the world, because at least there's no uh, worldview barrier to uh, uh, transforming this experience. So there's less of a hurdle to get over which is the case with materialism, for instance, or somebody who holds a materialist worldview. So then, what is this uh, you relationship to God that the Kabbalists talk about? And how would you go from a, a he or she relationship to a you experience? Well, Lali Shori, who is a great uh, Kashmir mystic, uh, mystic of Kashmir, 12th century, I think it was, uh, she writes, Don't look for him here and there, wondering where is God. Meditate on him. He lives in your heart. So this is this idea, instead of uh, sort of thinking of God as out there, or up in heaven, or someplace, to start turning inwards, to start trying to find God within, and particularly within the heart. And the heart doesn't mean just the 
muscle that beats in your chest, but it, uh, in all these traditions, the heart indicates the innermost core of your being, the center of your uh, who you are, really. In, indeed, we could say that the that the you experience of God, or when God starts to be experienced as a you, this is the God of the heart, not the God of the mind. And someone who is uh, living this experience often has a sense of this divine presence being there uh, in their lives uh, all the time. Sometimes it may be in a form, for instance, uh, of Jesus or uh, Krishna uh, or your guru, that there's a sense that there's some form of the divine sharing your life with you. I've met the fundamentalist Christians who often have more of this experience of God as a you than simply good Protestant uh, Sunday Christians. Uh, they have a, a true sense of walking with Jesus and whatnot. Often uh, a sign of this is that someone who has this you experience converses with God as though you would converse with another person. Here's Brother Lawrence, who is a great mystic. And he says, there is no way of life more agreeable or delightful than continual conversation with God. Only those who practice and experience it can understand this. Now, often what uh, the obstacle here is that we're too sophisticated to do that. It sounds too childlike and whatnot. Uh, but uh, truly speaking, if God is a presence in your life, or if you want to invoke this presence in your life, well, why not? Uh, it's not so much that God needs to hear uh, you verbalize things, but in that sense of verbalization, you start to touch into what's in your own heart, and uh, stuff comes up from your own heart. It opens your heart up. It doesn't have so much to do with uh, God. Uh, sometimes this relationship c can become extremely intimate and extremely intense. And then mystics, uh, particularly the bhakti mystics, uh, will talk about God as the friend, the dear friend, or the lover, or the beloved. Here's Mirabai, and she was a great Hindu mystic. Here's how she writes about Krishna, who's the form of the divine that uh, appears to her. To love Krishna brings pain. He speaks sweet words when you are with him, but then he forgets you and goes. Sisters, he snaps the ties of love, as you might pluck a sprig of jasmine. Says Mira, my lord, without thy sight, my heart grieves sorely. Notice she, she writes about Krishna uh, just a, a, like a lover. And this is a, a big clue here because when there is this experience of God as you that is really intimate in your life and close to your life, and when that presence is withdrawn, as often happens on the spiritual path, the seeker doesn't just lose interest. Uh, the way you might after reading a, a book, uh, you know, that intrigues you intellectually and mentally, and then you get all intrigued, and maybe you go to some conference and you hear these speakers talk about this, and then, uh, you know, you go about your daily business and you sort of forget about that, you kind of just lose interest for a while. But this is experienced as a real sense of uh, absence, as, as a heartbreak, as much, uh, if not more so than, than any human lover. So if you were deeply in love with somebody and they suddenly disappeared and took off for a month, uh, you wouldn't just say, oh, well, I mean, your mind would be constantly dwelling on this. Your, your heart, your emotions would be dwelling on this. So this is a sign of the depth and intensity of this experience of God as you. This is why Rumi, who is a great Sufi poet, writes, A thousand fires and smokes and heartaches, and its name is love. A thousand pains and regrets and afflictions, and its name is the Beloved. 
You know, a lot of people uh, that I run into anyway are uh, say, oh, I, I really want to go on a, more of a bhakti path, and more emotion. I don't want to think about this too much uh, because they think it's sort of easier. It's too much trouble to think, you know, a lot, to investigate and do practices of inquiry. Well, uh, i tell you something. A bhakti path is far more wrenching emotionally than uh, a path of inquiry. And, of course, really, truly speaking, you need both in any uh, balanced spiritual practice. You need both wisdom and love. And then, not only is this experience of the divine as a you a purely interior experience in the heart, but it also starts to become an exterior experience as well. And uh, this experience, this presence of the God, of the divinity, starts to uh, flash through the forms of your environment, and you begin to sense that it actually permeates the whole of the environment. So, for instance, uh, in the Quran, uh, they talk about wherever you turn your face, there's the face of God. The same thing uh, pops up in, for instance, the Bhagavad Gita, the great Hindu uh, mystical classic, where Krishna uh, is telling Arjuna, I am the flavor in the water, the radiance in the sun and moon. I am the scent of promise in the earth and the burning strength in the fire, the life in all creatures. I scorch, I stop and send the rain. I am deathlessness in death. O Arjuna, I am the entire world. Now this is a marvelous poetic expression of this sense of living in this presence. Not only when you uh, go in your heart and pray and so forth, but this is what Bonaventure was talking about. To see the splendor of all this and to see it as all uh, the form of the divine manifesting. Here's what God tells Hildegard of Bingen, and she was a great Christian mystic. Now, listen to the words here. You, you can't tell the difference whether this is uh, Krishna or the Christian God speaking. I am that living and fiery essence that flows in the beauty of the fields. I shine in the water. I burn in the sun and the moon and the stars. Mine is that mysterious force of the invisible wind. I breathe in the verdure and in the flowers. And when the waters flow like living things, it is I. All these live because I am in them. I am wisdom. I permeate all things. These are expressions of real experiences these mystics are having. They're not just some sort of uh, poetic concoctions. So then, how does this relationship to God as a you uh, come about? How do you, uh, how does this transformation take place from a God as the, the transcendent God, who is sort of above all things and the creator of all things, to God that is the imminent God, the God that is in all things as well. Well, uh, sometimes we could say it's God who initiates this. Uh, one of the most famous stories in the, in the Christian tradition, of course, is Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, who suddenly had this vision of Christ and was blinded and fell off his horse, and uh, this is a sort of a visitation. <laughs> Uh, but more often, it, it's, uh, it doesn't happen that way, unfortunately. <laughs> more often, it comes about because the individual is motivated to seek a closer relationship with divinity. And that usually happens through some crisis in your life, or 
uh, your, uh, just the sense that uh, your life is not going in, uh, anywhere or that maybe you've gotten a lot of material possessions, but there's no meaning, there's no purpose here. And so you begin to, to look, to, to think, to seek more. And if you already have a sense of the divine, it's much easier for you. You can investigate in your own tradition, the mystics of that tradition, or you can come places like this and hear about the mystics of all traditions. But uh, you really start looking for, for this closer relationship. And then most uh, seekers at that point, that's when they usually start taking up formal spiritual practices, meditation or devotional practices or practices of inquiry and so forth. But the real key to cultivating this you relationship with the divine, the real key is quite simple. It's remembrance, remembrance, uh, remembrance during the course of the day. And in all traditions, you will find various practices, little practices, and admonitions to remember God, to remember God. The Sufis have a wonderful saying, if you forget God, God forgets you. Uh, you can think of this very much like uh, looking in a mirror, actually, because as we'll see later, the ultimate uh, relationship here is one of identity. If you, uh, if you look in the mirror, then the, what's in the mirror looks back at you. If you turn your back on the mirror, then that turns its back on you too. So there's very much a, a mirror relationship between you and God. If you're not uh, looking for God, if you're not listening for God, if you're not uh, paying attention, if you have no curiosity about this uh, in your daily life, then God has no curiosity or interest in you. I'm speaking a little metaphorically here because we're in this stage of this kind of relationship where there seems to be a definite separation. And this is perfectly valid. Sometimes people are anxious to get over that or they know philosophically you have to practice from where you're at. And you may know intellectually that there's more to this, but if you do not work through these stages, you'll just end up with a lot of intellectual knowledge which really won't uh, transform your experience of the world, which is what a mystical path is all about. This is why Rumi says uh, about formal prayer in Islam, which is equivalent of formal sorts of practices, the purpose of this ritual prayer is not that you should stand and bow and prostrate yourself all day long. Its purpose is that you should possess continuously that spiritual state which appears to you in prayer. Whether asleep or awake, writing or reading, in all your states, you should never be empty of the remembrance of God. Ananda Moyamai, who's a contemporary Hindu mystic, uh, gives this advice. She says, attune yourself solely to God. Where the thought of God is, there he himself is present in the form of that very thought. So even if it's just thinking about God, there is uh, a God is present, just like God is present in the waters and the, in the sun and the wind and so forth. And Brother Lawrence describes how he uh, brought about this attunement in his own life. He says, Thus, after offering myself entirely to God, I renounced for the sake of this love everything other than God. And I began to live as if only he and I existed in all the world. Now that doesn't mean that Brother Lawrence is ignoring other people around him, certainly not, uh, or his environment. We think this way because we think of God as transcendent. If you just lived as though you and only God existed, well, then you wouldn't pay any attention to your environment. But if you have a you relationship to God, your environment is God. It's all the expression of God. So when you, you look around a room like this, 
yes, you recognize individual people as surface forms, but you're seeing God, you're seeing God, you're seeing God. When the cat walks by, you're seeing God. Whatever tasks are given to you, uh, maybe they're given to you through your boss or your employer or whatever, but they're being given to you through God. The whole world becomes what mediates uh, the divine to you. Really, it's quite simple. The instruction is quite simple here, although it's not so easy to put in practice. Stop thinking of yourself and start thinking of God. Stop serving yourself and start serving God. This experience of God as you, this relationship between the divine and you, is really a major turning point on any spiritual path. Uh, at this point, there's no going back. Even if you get disgusted with yourself and the whole spiritual path and you try to give it all up and you try to go back and lead just a purely worldly life, you'll find it's not satisfying anymore. So you're stuck. There's no place to go but to go forward, even though uh, the road may be dark and you may not know where you're going or what you're doing, maybe just stumbling along like a blind person there. At this point, you become a de facto mystic. You have no choice. You just That's the only way to go. I heard a, a Catholic priest once say, once you've had a taste of God, you can never be cured of him, which is a wonderful, wonderful way of putting it. So this is uh, very important. And it also, though, completely changes and enriches your whole life. Uh, there's, there's now purpose in your life. There's beauty, there's love, there's intimacy. The world is no longer some it out there to be manipulated. It's like the world is speaking to you all the time, not in, in words, uh, in voices and so forth. But everything you see and experience as this expression of the divine. But in spite of this, it's still not the end of the path. For as Rumi explains, with God, two eyes cannot find room. You say I, and he says I. Either you die before him or let him die. But since it is impossible for him to die, you die, so that he may manifest himself to you and duality may vanish. In all mystical traditions, there's the idea that ultimately everything is one. There is no duality. That is our delusion, our misperception of things, that there are many things. They are all ultimately underneath everything. They are one. Particularly in Islam, which is Rumi's tradition, there are no gods besides God, is the way the, the exoteric interpretation of the confession of faith uh, is read. But it also can be, and is read by Sufis, there is nothing besides God. So this, this is why he talks about there, there can't be two eyes here. There's only one eye in all this. So in order to, to have this manifest totally, completely, then you die. So this is this spiritual death, which is another very common metaphor in all these mystical traditions, is really what gnosis or enlightenment or liberation is all about. The death of this sense of a finite, uh, individual, separate self that exists apart from all this. This is why Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That's an expression of this identity. In the in Hindu mysticism, the ultimate expression of all Hindu mysticism is a Sanskrit uh, a term, tatvam asi, that thou art, that being the Brahman, the, the, this, this one ultimate principle behind all things. Even in Buddhism, where they have no concept of a god as such, your very nature, your self-nature is the Buddha, and there is no other Buddha, Huaining says. 
all expressing this sense of this ultimate identity here. So this is where the spiritual path leads. This is what Gnosis is all about. This is what is to be realized when people talk about self-realization. Uh, the, the realization that there is basically just this one. And so there's, everything is an identity. But it's very, very, very important to understand that the identity of I and God here is not the ego I, the ego self. The uh, delusion that the ego is God is the worst possible delusion from a mystic's point of view that you can fall into. So, uh, sometimes in order to avoid confusion about this, mystics often talk about the realization is that the I is nothing. This self-I, this little I, this ego-I. This is why in the Kabbalist tradition, uh, the Kabbalists point out that the Hebrew letters for I, which transliterate into English as uh, A-N-I, Ani, I guess it's pronounced, are the same letters, just switched around, that express nothing which is A-I-N. So this last relationship to God, from the Kabbalist point of view, from he to you to I, is the realization that the I does not exist, the little I. That there is, the only I there is, is uh, God. Could we put a non-local I? You could put it that way in contemporary terms. Yes, you could put it that way, a non-local I. That comes, this comes from uh, studying quantum mechanics here. Very good. So, the actual experience is that, yes, the body uh, phenomena, sensations, still appear in consciousness. Thoughts still appear in consciousness. Emotions still appear in consciousness. In fact, in terms of the contents of consciousness, nothing really changes. Because, actually, this is the way it's been all along. It's the way it is right now. We just don't see it. But there's, there's nothing special about this in that sense. It's just to see things the way they actually are, as they've always been. All these things continue to appear in consciousness for the Gnostic, and yet they're no, long, no longer experienced as mine. It's not my body and sensations and emotions and thoughts arising here. Here's how the Sufis describe it. I become his ear so he can listen with that ear. I become his eye so he can see with that eye. I become his tongue so he can speak with that tongue. I become his hand so he can grasp with that hand. And I become his foot so he can walk with that foot. So this is the, the experience of I, ego I, is not doing anything. Ego I is not there. And we could say, uh, because we have to say something, hey, God's doing all this. Now listen to Lali Shwari, a mystic from uh, Kashmir. And, and, and the name of the divine for her is Shiva. Shiva sees through your eyes. Shiva hears through your ears. Shiva speaks with your tongue. Shiva makes your breath move in and out and digests your food when you eat. That's the exact same thing, isn't it? See, the same experience gives rise to the same expression. I don't care if you're a, a, a woman, a saint in Kashmir, or you're a Sufi poet in uh, Turkey, or wherever you are. It's the same experience, always gives rise to the same expression. So the main lesson that we can glean from this great Kabbalist teaching, and it's just so beautifully put, so com uh, compact and so precise, and you see, by the way, how we can unpack teachings like this. Uh, the main lesson here, really, is that 
Spiritual transformation involves much more than just a transformation of ideas about the world. It really involves a total psycho-spiritual reorientation of experience. It's really a journey from an it experience of the world, if you're starting off as a materialist, to the experience of this I, that the whole world is an expression of this I. It's a transformation in the very perception of the most ordinary, mundane things. Quite literally, a flower is never a flower in the same way to you anymore. Uh, even, even what we call negative things, uh, garbage in the street, all of this uh, starts to express this whole lila, this divine play that is unfolding. So even short of gnosis, if you at least get to the place where you are experiencing the world in this you uh, relationship, uh, even if you get to that place, your whole experience, your literal experience, everyday experience, will be turned upside down and transformed. So... Uh, don't be so anxious to jump to the end of the path. There's a lot, a lot, an awful lot to experience along the way here. Let me close uh, for, with some advice from the Hasidic master, Manaham Nahum. He says, Have full faith that the glory of God fills all the world, that there is no place devoid of Him and none beside Him. Then by means of that faith, you will come to a longing and a, desire and a desire to cleave to God. And in this way, you come to your root, the spring at the well of the living waters. So you see, he says, you begin with faith in these teachings. That's just the beginning, though. That's not the end of the path. And then this arouses a curiosity to desire. And you go investigate. You go find out. You go explore. You go seek this out. And then, as he puts it, you will come to your root, the spring at the well of the living waters. This is where all this world arises from. So I thought I'd share that little uh, bit of Kabbalism with you this morning. Hopefully it'll be uh, helpful and give you a new way of at least looking at your own spiritual path, your own practices. And if you have any questions or comments, let's talk about it. Um. I read in your book uh, your experience of Athena. Would that be equivalent to the you stage? It is. It is like very much like a Christian having experience of walking with Jesus or something like that. Uh, at the time, I was so naive. Uh, at one hand, I was so sophisticated that this was a perfect um, way, if you like, that the divine could reach me. Appearing in the form of Jesus wouldn't have done it for me. I would have dismissed this as some sort of hallucination or whatever. Athena was somebody I could relate to out of mythology and so forth. So, you know, there's always a perfect match, even though we don't realize it. God always is expressing itself to us in a form that we can uh, understand. That's why uh, Christ doesn't appear to uh, Hindus and Krishna doesn't appear to Christians, you know. And so in that sense it was. Now, I thought this was a very unusual phenomenon at the time, uh, this happening to me. Uh, so much so that I sometimes wondered if I wasn't going a little crazy or, you know, and was I said... voice? I mean, how did it manifest? I forget the specifics. Well, first in a dream. And th this was a little bit like, uh, as I said here, God uh, initiates this. Although I was ready. I was ready in the sense I'd come to a point in my life where I was going nowhere and I knew it. 
so I had come to a point of crisis, you know, right, I was ready to, to receive this, you know. So, uh, initially it was in this dream where it was a full visual auditory phenomena. Then after that, it was sometimes like a voice, but often it was not even, even so much a verbal voice. It was, uh, the sense of the presence of an autonomous, uh, intelligence giving guidance. But not only that, but also the exterior part of it. And if you remember in my book, I talked about suddenly I, I'd be walking down the path and it seemed like all the trees were bowing and all this. At the time, I wasn't, uh, and, and wisely so, wasn't uh, ready to say, well, now is this, is this what reality is like and this not? Mm-hmm. I had enough humility to recognize I was on a path to find out about reality. So I gave up trying to decide, is this real or not? And I started to ask, what's the value of this? And the more I, I asked that, the more I could see the beauty uh, and the divinity in the world, with not yet knowing what this divinity was. Anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, oh, he erased them before me. <laughs> okay, I didn't see him. Go ahead. Uh, do you know how the Jewish culture and tradition relates to their mystics? The Jewish what? Culture and tradition relates to this? Well, according to this wonderful book we have in the library called The Jew and the Lotus, written by, what was his name? Do you remember, Jennifer? Mm-hmm. Written by a Jew. Uh, not much anymore. Most Jews growing up today do not, ha- aren't even aware that there's a Kabbalist tradition, or if they're aware of it, they think of it as some superstitious thing from the past. And one of the reasons, according to him anyway, that so many Jews, for instance, have been attracted to Buddhism is because it's lost in the, in the normal temples and synagogues. You know, it's, they've lost the mystical core. And historically, as far as I know, and I'm not a great expert on this by any means, but somewhere around the uh, uh, 17th, 18th century, as the materialist and scientific worldview became dominant, much like Christianity, but even more so, Judaism uh, started to uh, rationalize itself, uh, try to conform more and more to this more materialist scientific worldview, as they saw it at the time, scientific. And so uh, started to strip out a lot of the, the true mystical and devotional elements. One of the interesting things today is, I mean, I, uh, from reading books like this, you gather is, like a lot of peoples, the uh, Jews themselves are rediscovering their own mystical uh, roots, you know, uh, as Christian Christians are, Catholics, some, you know, some Catholics are and stuff. But uh, you go back and dig through these traditions and they're there. But just, I think, I think the same things happened as happened in Christianity, that a lot of it was lost and forgotten. Yeah. Uh, during the talk, you mentioned heart. Can you elaborate on what heart means, like, let's say, in the mystical, spiritual way of looking at it? Uh, yes. First of all, in many cultures, they don't have the separation that we have in Western culture between heart and mind. We, we feel that there's almost two centers in our being. One's the heart's the center of emotions, and one's the mind that thinks. Uh, in Chinese culture, for instance, there's a, a character, a word, sing, I think it's pronounced, or something like that, that you can translate either heart or mind. So they have this idea that the, the, there's one center at the core of being that both emotions and mind comes from. So in the West, there's this real sense of separation. Your emotions are one thing, your thoughts are another. So we've got an extra problem here. 
But when mystics talk about heart, the emotions are a sort of the most outward manifestation of the mystical heart. But the mystical heart is not really uh, purely an emotional thing. It's, it's something much deeper. And it's the place uh, where insight is born. And insight is something that is, uh, in the way mystics talk about it, it is not a rational conclusion, a conclusion of logic about the world. It's a kind of direct seeing. Uh, it can it can be an intellectual insight in the sense that you thoughts can fall into place through insight, but it has an immediacy and a power that simply coming to an intellectual conclusion does not carry. It is a uh, like an intuitive form of knowledge, although intuition has been sort of misused lately in our culture. Uh, it's this immediate direct insight. And it's insight that gets you to see things a little differently. And that's the important part about it. You actually start to experience the world a little differently. You see the world in a new way. You see? And that's why this emphasis on moving out of just, just a purely intellectual view of God and, and mysticism and so forth, which is very important in preparing the way and moving into a deeper place. Now, that also will then generate emotions and feelings and a sense of love, of intimacy, of all these things naturally flow out of that place of the heart, which is also the place of insight. So we're getting, you know, we're getting uh, down to this more unified sense of where this is coming from. And uh, often it has the, the feeling of not coming from the personal ego eye center. It's it, it sort of comes from some deeper place inside you and wells up and kind of takes over a little bit sometimes, a feeling that's taking over. And this is why mystics always talk about it. Once you tap into that stream within yourself, then the trick is to surrender to it. So it's finding that place. Now, usually people aren't in touch with that. They're, they operate on this very surface emotional level, and then a very surface uh, thought level, that chit-chat that goes on in your mind all day. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they uh, often feel very disconnected in a certain sense to their surroundings. You feel like you're talking to people over some barrier, you know, or, or the, the world is distant and out there because there isn't this sense of intimacy and connection with it. All that comes from opening the heart, as it's often described. It's often expressed in the mystical traditions as like a subterranean spring of water, a, a well that's been covered over. It's in there, it's there, but you have to remove the sort of debris to get it to flow out again. And a lot of times the myst whole mystical path is described as really just this removing of the debris. It's not creating anything that isn't already there. You remove the debris and then the well fills up with water. And it's, uh, that's a very universal metaphor in, in mystical traditions. The wound of the heart. Okay. And then other ones to get to that. Yeah. To wound the heart is to pierce the heart, to open this up. Mm -hmm. To untie the knots of the heart is a famous Hindu one. Uh, Jesus talks about the, the trouble of the Pharisees. They've hardened their hearts to God. So all these images you find over and over in these traditions. It's where this, uh, this uh, relationship to the divine transforms from a, a more of an intellectual a transcendent idea, idea to a real felt experience the, to this you relationship. Is that helpful yes, a little yes. bit? Thank you.
All right. Well, if there are no more questions or comments, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And uh, you're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library. And until next time, peace to you all.